Hi, Stella. Well, hello there. So we're talking um, about schools for the first time today. So this season, we really wanted to put together kind of several series that cover important topics. And of course, schools are huge for, for multiple reasons, right? Like I think a lot of parents are unsure what to do with their kids' schools. A lot of people just observing the cultural trends think that schools are like the genesis place for a lot of this gender identity stuff. And so we wanted to bring in a variety of voices to explore the school issues. Um, and this is the first of many episodes we're going to do around this. I think a lot of us don't really know what to do with schools. I think a lot of parents have just spoken in panic because school should be mm. the place where the child goes and they think they're safe. They've been educated. I can forget about them when they're in school and I can live my life. And there was there's some myth is growing up around schools that kids have been indoctrinated. And I know some schools are very doctrinaire, but there's an <laughs> yeah. awful lot of schools that aren't indoctrinating. They're reflecting the society and the chaos and the chaotic yeah. thinking of society. And I find more and more when in any my work in school, they are reflecting what's going on in society where there'll be one person who's incredibly into it, a huge amount of people who are kind of uninformed and not really sure and nodding along nervously, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and one or two people asking a few questions. So we, we think it's really important, and I, I really think it's going to be very helpful to just explore schools in a leisurely way over the season yeah. so that we kind of get a really good insight in all the different ways of looking at what's going on in schools. Yeah, and we'll touch on some of the topics that we discussed, but I'll just tell you guys a little bit about Kate Parker. She served for 16 years as an elected trustee in a K-12 through and community college board. Um, and most recently, she was the president of the Santa Barbara City College Board of Education in California, and she just stepped down from that role. Um, she currently works as a library director in a private school, and she's a high school educator and also the parent of an adult trans-identified kid. So Kate kind of talks about how having a kid who's kind of going through this gender process has given her a lot of insights while also having that background in education. So we start off by talking about how she noticed things changing, how gender came into the school system and what happened next. We talk about a lot of things like the triangulation uh, that happens in families when the school's keeping secrets from parents and how destructive that can be. And she also gives really helpful advice to parents who want to work cooperatively with the school if they have a problem with how things are being done or like a curriculum that's being taught. Because there is a lot that parents can do if they're not happy. Mm -hmm. And in a way, um, I think in, the, in this interview, Kate pulls down the wall of the kind of powerlessness that the parents feel. Yeah. I'm not happy with the school. And so often I would say, well, have you spoken to the school? Oh, no, I'm afraid to. I'm really not happy mm -hmm. with what they're doing. I, I feel kind of powerless and frightened yeah. and silenced. And I, I really hope that after listening to this, people will realize, no, no, I can use my voice. I have power as a parent I, and th there is something before. It's not going from zero to lawyers. There's many mm -hmm. steps between that if you're not happy with yeah. what's going on. Yeah. And for people who are just kind of cultural observers of this trend, Kate kind of helps us really understand, like, how do schools work on the ground? How do school boards operate? And, you know, what are what are some of the responsibilities of schools and how do they therefore respond to this new gender curriculum coming in? Like, it was really interesting and it gave me a lot of insights. So uh, we hope you enjoy our discussion with Kate Parker. 
Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Welcome, Kate Parker, to the show. Hello, Stella and Kate. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. We're very glad you're here. We'd love for you to tell us a little bit about, um, you've worked in education for a long time, and um, maybe we can touch on this a little bit since we have listeners from all around the world. Talk a little bit about what it means to be serving on a school board, you know, in a district, so that people from different countries who have different school systems can understand, like, what you've been doing, what your role is, and and how that kind of plays out. Right, Okay. Um, so in North America, when we, when we talk about state funded education, we're talking that's public education for us here. Um, and in North America, that is typically mostly controlled by your state or your province. Um, so the federal government in the United States has some, um, levers that it pushes to influence what's going on in state education, but the main control is at the state level. Um, and then at the state level, they're trying to push as much control as they can down to a local level. Um, and th- there's huge variation as to what local means from state to state. So, for example, you have the state of Hawaii. It has one school district for the entire state. I'm in California. We have a thousand school districts for the state. And okay. um, the uh, school boards vary in size depending on the size of the district, how many students um, there are in the district. Um, and then the board members are elected by, in, in elections that all the regular voters participate in. So it's not like school governors where it's just your school community that's voting. It's the voters at large. And the intention is really to have local control as much as possible over what your community needs, what your community values are. Um, and so it, you'll, that's why you'll see big differences between the states, for example, in um, their approaches to education. Um, Some of these have been in the news a lot uh, recently and a lot of disagreements, a lot of tensions in some cases, but um, really the intention is for your local community to have as big a say as possible in how schools are run. Um, So I served in uh, my community, so I'm in Santa Barbara, California, and my community has, uh, you know, somewhere, the the range of students has has varied about 10,000 students now, about 13,000 students when I was there. Um, and I served with them for 12 years, and then I moved on to a community college board of education, which is essentially for the next level up for, for um, a community, a local college, um, but also public education. Mm-hmm. I'll, be, I'll be really interested later on when you might tell us how much power does a, a school board have? Like, can they, can they have their own views on, you know, for example how gender is kind of done in the schools because an awful lot of the work in Genspect is, you know, working with schools and stuff. And I never really know who has the power, Mm -hmm. where's the the power structure. But before we go into that, it would be nice if you told us when, when did you notice gender coming into schools or, you know what I mean? Or what was it like before then? Or, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, so a, uh, 
another side of my life is that I am an educator at an independent school, at a private school. And so um, 2016 was the year that I first noticed it. And honestly, it had been coming in when I look back historically. It had been coming into schools before then. It had been coming, it had been coming into uh, state law before then. And of course, there had been bathroom bills in the U.S. and there had been lots of drama around that. But um, it it seemed very small scale. Um, and, it, you know, it wasn't explained in any systematized way. Um, and I remember that one of my colleagues had been to some training um, and thought it would be a good idea because she had heard that there were these children um, that were identifying as transgender. And there, it could be that we would have one come to our school at some point. Um, so we should have training. So we had an outside trainer come in and, um, you know, I think my first clue that, that this was going to be very different was really that we got a, um, some preparatory material to read ahead of time. And it was feminist literary criticism, um, about what the concept of gender was. Um, and of course I knew what the concept of gender was in my work. What I'd found is that gender is referred to in two ways, either meaning sex or meaning, um, you know, uh, roles and behaviors linked to sex. And it was really clear as this trainer was coming in that, that she was going to be talking about the roles and behaviors piece. Um, but that training, wow. I mean, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance with that training. And I, I thought, um, she was talking about how we all had, that we all had a gender identity. That was the first time I'd heard that I was supposed to have a gender identity. And, um, she was saying that, um, you know, that everybody had this, that we all had deep feelings around essentially roles and behaviors. And I was thinking, wow, this is really weird. Cause I knew that the woman who brought her in considered herself to be a feminist and, and this did not seem a particularly mm -hmm. feminist angle. And I, I didn't really feel like I had a gender idea. So I'm sitting there, but essentially I'm in a room full mm -hmm. of educators, 50 of us, listening to this and I hadn't thought about it until much later but of course we were all trying to identify our gender identity inside of ourselves in that moment and trying to kind of understand and conceptualize this um, I didn't understand that the same trainer was going already into local public schools and talking to kids in the same way um, and uh, to me it was just a personal experience for a while so I, I came out of that I came out of it with two big questions what in the heck did you mean when she's saying gender identity and then also what did kids think about gender identity because I didn't mm -hmm. remember my own uh, unlike Stella O'Malley I have no memory of what I thought as a three or four year old about myself um, and and my sex and so first I went to California law California law is actually really clear um, gender means sex so mm -hmm. in uh, in California law, when they're talking about gender, they're talking about sex. And then it said that includes gender identity and gender expression. Well, I was like, oh, <laughs> this poor trainer. She's just very confused person. She's not very clear. She meant that we all perceive our sex. Um, your gender identity is your, just your perception of your sex category. I can understand that. Um, and of course, we all perceive our sex category. And there are probably some kids that don't perceive that their sex core, uh, category matches what exactly, you know, an objective, uh, you know, medical diagnosis would say. Uh, and then I also went to 
look up what do kids think. And of course, that brings you right away to uh, Kohlberg, Lawrence Kohlberg and the gender um, constancy. Lots of videos around mm-hmm. that. And the first time you watch one of those videos and you see what a, um, a two and a half or three year old thinks about uh, gender or sex in this case, you realize, oh, there's, you know, young children have no idea. Um, and, and there's actually one of my favorites is, I don't know if you've seen James. Have you seen the video with James, the little English child? I don't think so. I'll, I'll, I'll share that link because it's, it's wonderful. It's James at two and a half. Um, and then the same interviewer circles back to James at five and a half. And the difference between James at two and a half, where essentially, uh, what makes you a boy? I've got short hair. Um, between and then James at five and a half well he's well, you know he's he's embarrassed because he has to say that oh my goodness I'm a boy because oh, I have a willy um, <laughs> and it's it's charming um, yeah. it's also charming because to me James at five and a half is now more easily able to articulate the difference between um, sex and the societal norms around sex than mm-hmm. some American PhDs at this point um, but he also says something important, which is that I think the interviewer asked him, like, how do you know that you're going to grow up to be, that you're a boy and that you're going to grow up to be a man? And he looks at the interviewer like, kind of like you're an idiot, but, you know, well, my, my parents told me. Mm. My parents told me. Um, and that raised a lot of questions for me, like, oh, what if your parents don't tell you? Mm. Um, so I came out of that. That was 20, the beginning of 2016, January 2016. Over the course of that year, suddenly uh, um, my kids, uh, so I, I have uh, children, I had children at the time in the public school system. They had kids starting to come out as trans left and right. Um, and then in January 2017, I don't know if you remember this, Sasha, but there was a national, big National Geographic cover story. Yes. Um, called Gender Revolution. Yes. And on the cover it, of it, there was a little... Um, a, a little child with pink hair. A little hair. child, yes. yeah, wearing all pink with yeah. the long hair. This was a trans girl. Now, mm-hmm. interestingly, that child as a teenager no longer identifies as a trans mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but at the time, I was just like, wow, what in the heck? You know, things have really, they're starting to change. Um, but it took, it took more time. It took, um, it was a few years of kind of thinking about things to understand that there was this new third way of thinking about sex and gender that was coming in. Um, I was familiar with two ways. Um, and so the third way was uh, a real change. Um, and to see it coming in um, around 2016, 2017, starting to come in to um, into the schools, into, um, and were the teachers, state department of education guidelines. Yeah. Were the teachers talking much in the staff and was it, was it kind of something that people expressed kind of worried that they weren't trained or was it generally considered this is part of our new progressive life? I think at first they thought they might never see it. Um, because we hadn't ever seen it. Um, It was so rare. And so 
um, thinking back to when the training happened, it was very theoretical. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that there were lots of thoughts going on in that room uh, when we had the first training, but but people weren't necessarily talking about it because mm. they didn't think it was going to apply to them. Or they Gosh. didn't think it would apply to the school. Um, and then by the time, um, by the time it became clear that really no, like we're all in every setting, public and private, you're going to need to be making some changes. Um, and that there's this new way of conceptualizing, um, um, sex and gender, um, it, it was kind of almost, I, I think there are a lot of, there, there's a, a real range of opinions and feelings. A lot of teachers, I think, um, won't share them because um, there is a, a, a standard line. Um, and so they kind of keep their opinions to themselves and just do their work. And, and this is something I can definitely vouch for because I get contacted all the time by people who are teachers, school counselors, people who are in training to become teachers or school counselors saying, well, they mm -hmm. have a lot of concerns about what we're being asked to say, being asked to do, being asked to teach, and they don't feel comfortable saying anything. Um, so, you know, from, from that vein, I'm wondering, Kate, for you, you started kind of trying to understand what these new ideas were you kind of had these three ways sex as biological sex or gender as gender roles and then this like gender identity concept at what point did you start to say um i actually don't know if i agree with this because it seems like at first you were like what is this this is different yeah. maybe it's just this thing that will never apply but then you start seeing kids so like at what point did you realize <laughs> okay there's a problem here and did you say anything to anyone at that point yeah so I actually think of of it in three different ways, Sasha. And that is okay. that I think of um, the way I had been conceptualizing sex and gender, meaning the societal norms around it, is that there were um, there's a traditional way of thinking of it in that there that is that there are two sets of societal norms and behaviors mm -hmm. that are linked to two fixed sexes. Mm -hmm. Understanding that there are people with DSDs, differences of sexual development, mm. where maybe you don't know right away which mm. sex they are. Um, but that was kind of a traditional way of thinking of it. Then a more contemporary way of thinking about it was that there are uh, societal norms and behaviors, but they're flexible. Mm. Um, and that you um, have a fixed sex, but that you can um behave or do or have all these different roles and there may be some societal uh, or even biological links to what you're doing mm. but you have flexibility that's actually kind of what you see in contemporary society um, but this new way that was coming in was um, kind of going back to um, there are fixed societal norms uh, mm -hmm. and behaviors linked to two sexes well not to two sexes Sex is, a, sex, sex is a spectrum. Um, biological sex is a spectrum. It is not fixed. Um, uh, the, the behaviors are fixed. You can move between them, but you have to self-declare that you're moving between them. Yeah. Um, so you have to give yourself a label, whether it's something like agender or gender fluid or trans. Um, so you need a, a, a label to move between it, but it's all through self-declaration. 
very different um, in some ways. Some ways like the traditional, um, you know, in terms of the fixed piece. But um, that is what was coming in. And that is what um, I see in the curriculum that comes into our schools now. Um, and that, I think, is where the conflict and questions lie. Um, because what I've seen is that those who are bringing in the curriculum um, that says uh, that sex is a spectrum, um, I, I know that they're getting at um, the, the concept of intersex or DSDs, and they're trying to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, it's uh, other people could view that as misinformation. Um, and certainly it is controversial, very controversial. Um, and in public education in particular, um, my personal view, it's very strong. The public education is for everybody. And so we need to be able to coexist. We need to be able to understand when people have different beliefs that are reasonable. Um, and that's, that's part of the tension that's going on. Um, there's another piece of tension there, though, and that is like, when are you actually giving children scientific misinformation that misleads them? Um, and that is... That has come up again and again, of course, in American science education from everything from intelligent design mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, climate change. Um, you know, these these are fights that we are familiar with. Yeah. Um, yeah. What What's unfamiliar to me is to see this piece, which I would consider a little uh, more mis... You know, I don't want to call it misinformation, but so nuanced to be to the point of confusing children. Um, that is surprising to me to see it coming from the left. Yeah. So at what point, if, if at any point, did you raise your thoughts or share your ideas with anyone else? And I'm wondering what the reaction was, because I would suspect you're not the only person to notice this and feel like there's something (laughs) strange about it. Yes. Well, in some ways, I'm really lucky. Um, I think that you all said in my bio that I have an adult trans child. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, with that, I have been actually able to be more forthright um, than people who don't have a trans kid in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I recognize that I have that privilege as a parent. Um and, and, um, so I've never, certainly I've never been, um, shy at work, um, to say what I think this was happening in the school system, in the public school system, um, before I, or just as I was leaving it and moving on to the community college level. Okay. Um, and so as, uh, they brought in a curriculum, um, that says things like, um, you know, it says things like biological sex is a spectrum and, um, and uh, remind students, and this is for 12-year-olds, remind students that, you know, some men are born with female anatomy and some, you know, women are born with male anatomy and essentially really trying to reinforce the kids that this is not a fixed category, mm-hmm. um, that sex is not a fixed category. 
um, that came in right after I left and I, you know, I was in communication with my board. Um, I, I was emailing them and, and sharing, look, you know, it, locally, it was really about the Christian conservatives standing up and saying, no, you shouldn't be bringing this curriculum in, but they were doing that on a religious ground. And what I've seen on the left is that when you do that, um, that really all these barriers go up. Yeah. Um, and it becomes a political battle and everybody goes into their groups and digs down mm-hmm. and they can't judge anymore. They actually won't even look at the curriculum for, with their own eyes. They just take the, the word of everybody else. Um, and I'm like, you know, there's scientific misinformation in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not shy about saying that. Did mm-hmm. they pay attention to it? They did not. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I will speak up all the time. But just for our listeners, because I know they'll be thinking about it. Well, I guess they will. You you said you have a trans uh, adult child, yes. you know, and that gave you a kind of entry to speak as such. It certainly gave you authority, almost lived experience so that you you're, you were listened to. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, was that post 2017 when you'd had the wor- workshop or you know, the gender, I don't want, you don't need to go into it, but just to give people context of where you are at, if you follow me in that. Yes. Yeah, so I, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, that's, that was difficult because I, in 2016, the trainer was still talking about young kids that knew themselves in some way. Um, and so at that point I had a kid coming into the teen years, um, that, uh, where you would never have guessed this beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that I was going to have this conversation with you, I did ask, um, mm-hmm. like, where did you first hear about this? Uh, that, you know, trans is a concept. And uh, it was in, um, it was in middle school, other 12 year olds that were talking about it. So it was, it was from other peers talking about it. Um so I know that they then had trainings at that school that said things like everybody has a gender identity and this is how you conceptualize it. Um, and, and um, you know, really focusing on ma- masculine and feminine stereotypes mm-hmm. as making up the gender identity. Um, but that was really not the first connection. It was peers. It was definitely peers. Um but that was uh, about a year after my initial training. Okay. Um, and it was really uh, everything that I learned from my own kids that helped me uh, kind of uh, process, a question and process. Because, um, you know, when you, when you don't have a gender identity, there was a moment where I was just like, well, does this mean that I, you know, I should announce that I'm non-binary? which is, mm-hmm. a, you know, a completely, mm-hmm. uh, some people do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to make your own decision about where, um, you know, where you fall in mm-hmm. your belief system. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely, as a curious person, it's been, it's been a privilege to have um, a, a trans kid able to, uh, to bounce ideas off of and, um, and kind of go d- go deeper with. Um, and I also want to be really clear as I talk about this, um, this is not a trans versus non-trans. When I'm talking about those three mm-hmm. issues, I think a lot of people, especially um, 
my colleagues that, and so many of my colleagues, I mean, we are, we're definitely a left, <laughs> a, a liberal group of education mm-hmm. in education, um, that they, they only have gotten the message about what it means to be trans from, um, certain organizations, um, groups that they really have a lot of trust in that have done a lot of really good work. But with that, they don't understand that they only are seeing one limited perspective. Yeah. Um, and so I know that, you know, when you're in this world and you, you're seeing a lot of trans people with very heterodox views or with actually more traditional views, um, that there are plenty of trans people that think that there are two fixed sexes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it's important to, to being trans that there are two fixed yeah. sexes. Yeah. And so I, I want to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be clear as we're talking about that because I know people listening to this might think, oh, well, you know, that's not the way, um, you know, the human rights campaign talks about this. Yeah. Um, and therefore it's wrong. Um and so they don't have an understanding necessarily that there are a lot of different views on this, a lot of different views. Kate, you mentioned that having a kid who themselves identifies as trans has given you some kind of insight to bounce ideas off of your kid and talk about things. And you said, I've kind of learned some things that I wouldn't have maybe learned otherwise without like divulging any you know, personal information. Would you be able to share like what are some of those insights that you've gained? Well, it was really uh, through conversations with my own kid that I came to understand that the um, that the um, the gender was fixed, um, that it was not flexible, that it was fixed. Mm. Um, although, of course, you can move through through self 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 declaration. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an important conversation. Another really important thing to understand because there's so much uh, pressure around pronouns. Mm. Um, that is something that I've been able to, uh, bring up in multiple settings where people think they're being kind and inclusive, um, by asking for pronouns. So first of all, in California law and, and, and obviously it would be in American law in general, you can't be forced to hide or to reveal, um, a gender identity. And so, um, I think educators can, um, they get training that says, oh, you should be inclusive and it's kind to, to ask everybody's pronouns. They don't necessarily understand where they could be coming up against a, a legal barrier. Um, yeah, you're like forcing people to out themselves technically. To out themselves to ha- having a gender identity or not having a gender right. identity. Right. But they also don't necessarily understand the pressure that puts on a questioning student yeah. and the pressure that that puts on a trans student who um, does not feel safe. Mm. Um So, um, and, um, with that, it can be, um, really important that you model not demanding pronouns or always asking pronouns. And so that is, that's something that I've been able to share and to understand. Um, so, uh, and also I think that, that, um, one thing I see because, of my kid, I go into a lot of different uh, trans forums, and I see that um, some kids really developmentally struggle mm-hmm. with the tension of having parents that disagree with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that comes back to the schools. There's a real, um, for some 
teachers and counselors, there's a real misunderstanding around when, uh, about the importance of the family mm -hmm. system and the primacy mm -hmm. of the family system and the ability for, for kids to grow into understanding that parents and children don't always agree with mm -hmm. each other, mm -hmm. um, but can still stay connected. Mm -hmm. um, so much of the rhetoric in the in the forums is cut off people who don't see you the way you see yourself um and learning seeing a young person kind of developmentally figure that out um that you can um hold uh care and love and connection um despite what they're perhaps seeing online yeah. Um, that's really important. And that's something that really kind of frightens me about yeah. what I see going on in some schools where they do not understand that. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. That's really huge, actually. So, so what I'm gathering is that perhaps your child knows that mom doesn't necessarily believe she has a gender identity. And yes. yet I recognize I'm terrified my, child. my child. My child thought I was going to stand up in assembly and announce that. Oh. <laughs> so that's amazing. And and I, I definitely think that you, you mentioned like this kind of developmental piece. I think that's very important because when when you take a teenager who's like, let's say, 14 or 15, they're naturally going to feel maybe a little more persecution by parents. Like that's part of the developmental trajectory. But if the school and the adults in the person's life can kind of stay grounded in a healthy view, which is like, I know you're angry at your parents. They love you. They have their opinions. You have your opinions. That kind of sets them up for growing up because most of the time by the time a kid becomes a young adult, they have figured that out on their own. Like, oh, my parents are also humans and they have their own views and they don't have to, you know, I can do things my own way, even if mom hates it, like I'm allowed to. So yeah. it's really, really terrible when schools are kind of priming kids to push away, to estrange themselves, to cut ties mm. when they're already developmentally like prone to do that anyway. It's really dangerous. And I totally agree with you. Well, well this... and it's particularly dangerous in California, I think, because mm. um, in California, we have really strong state constitutional rights to privacy. And there are some things that um, children as young as 12 are allowed to decide for themselves. Um, some things that still require special circumstances for them to make those decisions. Um, but the state has essentially put out guidelines. So it's not in the law. And this is going to mm. definitely be tested in courts. It's being tested in courts now. 
Um, but the State Department of Education put out guidelines saying, you know, um, as soon as a kid announces a trans identity, you school personnel must change names and use their pronouns. Um, and you um, school par- personnel must keep that confidential. I mean, to me, that's the key piece um, that you must keep it confidential unless they, the child, tells you that you can tell the parents. And in the, the State Department of Education guidelines, they have not put any age limit on that. Um, so the current court case that's coming forward is one where an 11 year old um, was being um, assisted, you know, went into a school counselor and said, I think I feel like a boy. Uh, and they started making all sorts of plans for this kid and keeping the parent out of the loop. And when the parent found out, um, you know, rightfully so, flipped out. And and I, I think part of the issue is that sometimes some of the teachers and personnel that are getting involved are actually not trained as counselors. Um, mm. And they don't know family systems and they don't know um, triangulation. And they don't understand child development or adolescent mm. development. And so they are coming at it strictly from um, a sort of personal rights perspective um, and an identity perspective without looking at the big picture as a whole. Um, And so it makes me sad because I think our school counselors, you know, they work so hard and many of them are so highly trained and they completely get this. If they get a, um, I know that locally, if, if, if a kid, if a school counselor gets a secret like this from a kid that the school counselor is almost always going to be like, not, not holding on to that. You know, they're, Mm -hmm. they're going to be saying, look, you know, how are you going to tell your parents? So they may hold a secret for a very um, short amount of time, but they're going to be working with the child to help them bring the family in. Um, And that is a, you know, really very um, healthy way and a well-trained way of moving forward. Um, the ones that don't do that, the ones that just, um, you know, try to keep it. And, and the horrible thing to me is like a, a whole school community may be keeping secrets from a family. And when the family ultimately finds out, um, you know, they're humiliated, uh, embarrassed that they were left out of this process, um, the damage that it does to the long-term relationship um, and, and what stuns me about it is like, so many times they will turn and say, oh, the American Pedi- uh, Academy of Pediatrics, for example, says that we should do these things. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics does not say that mm-hmm. you should do this. Mm-hmm. And um, it utterly floors me. Uh, professional gender clinicians would never say to do this kind of thing. Um, so schools that do do this, they really are, um, I think, the long-term hurting children. Yeah. Um, and they need to be really careful because um, I know that parents are taking schools to court on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so much misinformation and misunderstanding about gender identity and how we should talk about gender identity, how you support these kids, that it could take a while for this to kind of shake out and for there to be a healthy way forward. Um but I think that if you're a teacher or a school administrator um, who's in this, you need to be really, really cautious because you may be doing more harm than good. Yeah, that's such a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. Even the most kind of ardent gender cl- clinicians, 
loop in the family. <laughs> so for yes. schools to be deliberately keeping parents on the outskirts is is uh, a very kind of rogue intervention that nobody recommends for that. Nobody does. But if you're a school, if you're a California school, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because if you had, say, a 17-year-old uh, and you... Uh, brought looped parents in without permission, um, you know, the 17 year old is going to take you to court with their um, uh, outside uh, organization. Is that just over you. 16 or are you specifically? Well, you're I mean, I think that there's, you know, the reality yeah. is, is the closer that you get to 18, yeah. um, it could be a 15 year old would take yeah. you to court too. Yeah. Um, there's not a hard and fast rule around what age, essentially over 12 um, they just have more rights to confidentiality, but it kind of blurs the older they get, Staged. the more, uh, the more a school is going to be like, Hmm. Mm. It's a, it's, it is blurred and it's unfortunately blurred. It's not definite and it's not clear. So pe people don't yeah. actually really know where they stand. It's like we've moved in many ways from, uh, and I've said it before from, being child centered to child led and this the yeah yes. <laughs> yeah sometimes i look at california law and some of the things that are going on in california law i'm like what in the world do you think 12 year olds are good lord mm -hmm. yeah um yeah it's 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 on one level it's kind of giving agency to children that could be one phrase but you could also say you're burdening children with adult mm -hmm. decisions yeah. yes yeah. Depending on what way you, 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 you frame the very same event could be, uh, you could use either sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And do 12 year olds benefit from having too much agency? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I also want to be cautious because I think a lot of times um, when I talk to parents, I see outrage around this. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we, we all need to understand that in our public schools, we see um, really dysfunctional families. We see kids that are in extreme risk. Yeah. And, um, and so schools are looking at it from that kind of safety perspective as, as well. Um, you know, I always recommend that if you're a parent, regardless that you're, that you're involved with your school, you're involved with your kid in their school life, that their teachers know you, that their counselors know you. Um, so that if anything happens, there's a, a level of trust and communication there. Um, because if there's not, if they don't know you, they really don't know, is this a family where this is a kid that's at risk or not? They don't know. Yeah, I want to be super careful. Yeah, I want to touch on that because I, I tried to make, th make this point in a recent episode that we recorded. I don't think it, it will be out yet. But as a school counselor, you get let's say you have several hundred students that you're responsible for. You get to know them in teeny little increments, walking down the hallway, checking in at lunch, maybe a few sessions in your office, but you don't have an intimate knowledge of every single child and their family situation. And when you have a variety of kids, some of whom are in crisis scenarios, those terrifying stories are, yeah. are prominent in your mind. And so you start to be a little bit hypervigilant. And even if you believe deep in your heart that most families like want what's best for their kids, these few isolated cases of really serious dysfunction 
end up kind of coloring your perception a bit. And I think a lot of school counselors, and I'm sure that I was in this place too when I worked in a school. I mean, I was really suspicious of the gender stuff specifically, but I I was very uh, kind of nervous about my kids that I used to see because I know some of them had really, really difficult home lives. So, yes. you know, when you do see these school counselors um, who seem to be taking an outsized sense of authority over the well-being of a child, you have to keep in mind, like, that's the backdrop sometimes. Sometimes they're also very young. They're just fresh out of school. Maybe they have their own kind of family trauma. And that's yeah. why they kind of become these, like, advocates for children. So there's a lot of factors that contribute when you see school personnel acting in ways that we think is really outrageous. Yes. Yes, for sure. Um and I think especially coming out of COVID, there's been so much, um, there's been a tension that's built up between teachers and families in some ways. There's a lot of differences in the way the states responded to COVID yeah. um, mm. and Zoom school and Such keeping kids um, away from each other. And um, to top it all off with that, with the other, um, both with what happened with George Floyd um, and now some of these um, different ways that that um, states and schools are responding to mm. to sex and gender um, there's there's a really unfortunate level of mistrust that I think has developed on both sides mm-hmm. um, and I I an important statistic for me is that um, I think it's it's either Gallup or one of the big research um, uh, polling companies, they always ask American parents, you know, what do you think about American education? And in general, they say it's always going to hell in a handbasket. So about 40% of them are like, oh, you know, American schools are terrible. But then when they ask them, how's your kid doing? How's your oldest child doing in school? How, what's their school experience? Okay. They say, oh, well, my kid is doing great. My kid's school is wonderful. And over 80% of them say that. Oh, that's and, so interesting. Um, so I think it's important to keep that in mind um, that this is really, it's, a, it's, it's about connecting to your school and being comfortable with the school that you're at. Um, and if they are bringing in curriculum that you're concerned about, um, having conversations um, that are calm <laughs> Uh, about that and and pointing out where the issues are um, and explaining. So one of the things I wanted to say is that like in in California, you can there's really strong um, parent rights here. So um, there there are some things you, that are that are universal across the U.S. But in the in in California, you have the right to look at all curriculum, all secondary materials, no matter what. Um, I know that some places really want that to be online. There are copyright issues with that. So they make it available at the school office. You can go after school, back to school nights, special meetings, district, whatever. Um, you have the right to ask to observe a teacher teach. Um, and so you can go in. And, and this is really, it's not about getting your child out of anything. It's about like, is this the right fit for my kid? Because you have choices here. You can go to a charter school. You can go to a private school. Um, you can homeschool. And so it's about parents having the ability to know that um, you can only opt out of one thing, and that is sex, edu- sexual health education, including anatomy. But the reality is because this belief around gender identity includes 
sex, biological sex and sexual anatomy. And so I haven't seen a curriculum uh, on sex ed that doesn't include gender identity in the way where it's talking about things like remind them that, uh, you know, some men are born without female, uh, with female anatomy. Um, and so in practice in California, um, you can opt out. Um, I think that the bigger question really is, um, first of all, you know, the science behind what they're doing is this, uh, you know, what point are you bringing in misinformation and misleading young children? Um, and then also parents having a false sense that this is really all about schools. I think it's actually, schools are reflecting what's going on in society. And so if you don't um, get in and teach whatever you believe um, to your children, then um, they're going to get information from around them in, in some other way that can really blindside you. Yeah. Could, could I ask you, Kate, would you have a kind of uh, a kind of an ideal step by step that parents who could be listening could follow when they're concerned with what's going on in the school? Like I always say, you know, I, I, I wrote a book on bullying and I said to be a polite nuisance and to go in have a meeting and go in again and you know you know what I mean and I, I give some kind of steps around that and people have found my in the bullying book that it's been really powerful that they had a kind of this is what I do because I'm not happy with the school and it feels such a wrench to change schools it feels so dramatic and frightening and dangerous to change schools I think parents whether it's bullying or whether they're not happy with gender they do it at a very last resort Yes. How would you outline? Because oh, you're gosh. the woman, huh? Yeah, no, it's, it, should, it really should be the, the opposite, right? It's not a last resort. Your first resort is always being in. And I know that parents are working and that they're busy. Um, but, of course, you know, your kids are your priority. And they spend so much of their day in school. You need to know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, first of all, you should get clear on what your values are yeah. around this and what your beliefs are. Um, because you could fall into one, any one of those three categories. Um, and I, I think the most important thing is that you teach your children to understand and respect that people, you believe this thing and other people will have different viewpoints and bring different ideas and that you can coexist, that you can be in classes together, that it actually has to start in just a very simple way and very young. So we just had a case here in Santa Barbara County, um, where, so where I've seen, um, parents, when, when kids go through a social transition at the junior high and high school level, it's typically, there's no announcement. It just happens, you know, you kind of move on at the elementary level. Um, that's different. And there are parents that transition their kids at the elementary level. And, um, the way I've seen it handled more carefully, I would say is a letter home, you know, what happens over a break, you know, Johnny is going to be coming back as Jane. You want to have conversations around it with your family and, you know, this is, um, this gives parents an opportunity to get clear on what they believe and to convey their values and to also whatever those values are to completely accept it, to, to not accept it and to be kind and inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of ways of approaching it. Um, but what happened here <laughs> was that a, um, a family and, uh, school decided just to bring the parents in and to have kind of a um a 
I don't want to call it a ceremony. It's not a ceremony, but to have a, to have an announcement, a special announcement in the moment, Johnny is now Jane, um, blindsiding kids who had come home, mom and dad have no idea that they needed to be able to talk about this in an articulate way with their children, whatever they believed. And it really put parents in an uproar. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I would say is, so, so that district, it's uh, a bit north of where I am, they are, um, you know, they have parents going to the board meeting now saying, you know, we want a special parents' rights package to come into board policy. We want it clear that this parents aren't going to be blindsided in this way. And so you can take a board policy approach. You can be talking to your board about this even before you get there. But I would say as an individual parent, you need to be talking and getting clear with your kids before they go to school. Um, and so that's talking about it at four and five um, and uh, making sure that they're ready and that they're not surprised because in today's society, it's likely that it's going to come up in their school. Um, so there's that piece of it. I would say you do need to look at curriculum. And when there is curriculum that you feel is not scientific, you should talk in a you know, get clear in your own head mm-hmm. and schedule a meeting with the teacher first. You start with the classroom teacher, um, and then if the classroom teacher um, doesn't get it, um, then you can move it on to the to the site principal. You can keep bumping it up all the way up to the board of education. So um, the board of education, Stella. You know, obviously there are there are state laws that we have to follow, but there can be a lot of individual differences. And so there's some districts here in California where they are making it explicit in their board, local board policies that they're gonna keep um, transition secret, that they're gonna keep them comprehensive. Have they the power to do that? The board have the power to? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then um, the there are other districts where they are saying, um, we are going to not do that, that we are going to tell parents if they, there's a gender transition. So there these, so it's very interesting now, so where it falls in the law, yeah. I think it could end up in courts eventually, but I, that is what I see going on. So that, there are, there is, um, some local differences happening here for sure. Yeah. This is what I've been hearing. And I, I see it in Ireland and England too, because Jensbeck goes into schools and each school, it feels like a, a little fiefdom, if you follow yeah. me. Each school is running its own thing. And I'm pretty shocked. And that's one of the reports that came out of the UK was all of these organisations that were coming in, giving different workshops. They, they, you are reliant on them being well informed and they might or might not be. I think that in schools in particular, there's a... a quite a lure of the outside expert and often the outside expert their only expertise is really personal lived experience um and so they are not coming in with a counseling background they are not coming in with a developmental background um their experience is the training materials that they've been given the trainings that they've observed and their own lived experience and and to to defend the schools a little bit because i know how under pressure they are they're suddenly been asked from, it used to be like teach them history, maths and English or whatever. Now they've yeah. been asked mental health. What's your mental yeah. health? What are you doing for bullying? There's been a suicide. What are you doing? And so they're just saying, give me an expert. I'm a geography yeah. teacher. And so they're yeah. very quick 
to give it away yes, to anybody yes, yeah. who, who yes. uh, yeah. yeah, and that's a real flaw. Yeah, and I want to, and I want to be careful because there's some outside experts that absolutely are experts and bring in. Like we've had kids come in, and get wonderful mental health, um, um, you know, peer training um, from people who are actually licensed therapists, and that is really, really important. But many times we don't differentiate um, between between these things, and we rely on. Thing, uh, on organizations that have done good work in the past, we assume that they're going to continue to do good work in the future. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of variation. And I've so given, Kate, I've given were... sorry, sorry, I'll just jump in and then you go you with your real question. I've given workshops where <laughs> somebody will put up their hand and say, you're saying something very different to a workshop I've heard. And I'm like, yes. Mm. And that puts everybody in a, a difficult position. But yes, I am. You, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, well, and I think that that's important too, because so many people don't realize that there's a different, different way of looking at things. Um, in California, most uh, school districts have what's known as a um, controversial issues policy. And oh. this is nothing if not a controversial issue, right? So controversial issue means that you have, um, and the board policies may be slightly different between the districts, but it's essentially it is making sure the teachers are bringing in opposing viewpoints, different viewpoints oh. on, on an issue. Um, and I've seen some school boards use this pretty effectively when teachers have brought in certain types of material where it was, it's, you know, you know, you're going to be at a flashpoint, you know, that, that parents are going to disagree on some aspect of what they're talking about. Um, just bring in, teach the controversy, bring in um, outside voices and, and help kids understand that there are different ways of looking at things. Brilliant. Teachers often need that, right? They need um, people to come in and say, oh, you know, you may not have thought about it this way. Um, and I think it's so important. And our teachers really are not getting that stuff. Mm. Well, I wanted to just kind of make sure we got all of your tips because you talked about like if there's curricula that's being taught that you disagree with, start with the classroom teacher. And then if the teacher doesn't get it, I think you said go to the school board, right? You Well, the, 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 you kind of work yourself mm -hmm. up the chain, right? Your mm -hmm. teacher to the principal. Mm. From the principal, you may either go to the district superintendent or to the school board either way. Okay. And I think... Um, Sometimes uh, parents don't understand the influence that they have. And I'll give an example. So I just came off the Santa Barbara City College Board. We had huge controversies around mandated vaccines for students oh, yeah. um, for the COVID vaccine. You can, you know, that was a lot of drama. And um, faculty felt very strongly one way. We had members of the community that felt very strongly the opposite way. And, um, it, the board um, uh, supported the faculty position and really, uh, you know, we mandated vaccines through the pandemic phase. The, the, the difficulty was switching from the pandemic to the endemic phase um, as uh, some faculty really struggled with the, the changeover. And yet the, the parents and students that have been coming for years and years saying, stop, you know, we, we don't need this vaccine and you don't need to mandate this anymore. Um, 
and they were frustrated with us, but they also had an influence on us and an impact on, on us And when we decided that we no longer needed the vaccine. And if they hadn't been there speaking up, we wouldn't have made that change. Wow. And I think boards need to hear diverse viewpoints. You may be frustrated that they don't vote your way, but your impact and your voice and your connection, it makes a difference. Um, Is there any work and, in, in involving the parents' council? If you're a parent and you're in the school, sh should you involve the parents' council to get maybe people, you know, different, different opposing views in? You could. I think that that's very much going to depend on where you are. Yeah, true. Um, so I would say um, in where I am, it is such a... Uh, um, it is such a liberal neck of the woods and they haven't, they haven't necessarily thought through, they just want to be kind and inclusive in the most lovely, lovely way. Um, and it makes them uncomfortable <laughs> to talk about differing viewpoints on this. Um, so if you go to, um, they're called PTAs here. I don't know what you yeah, call them in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you went to your, your parent group, um, they would, I think, it would just depend on which school you're at, and it would depend on the leader leadership of that parent. Also depends on the some parent. Would really shut you down. Depends on the parents. Sometimes the parents, like you say, they have more strength. They've been in it for years. They're in the PTA. They're well known, and yes. they can make a difference. And they're often they afraid can make a difference. to. Yeah, they're afraid to speak yep. up, but they actually have a lot of respect already from their peers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there are ways to speak up yeah. that that other parents are more able to hear, even if it's just on the edges. Like if, if there was something like this, I'd be like, you know, I think um, if I were talking about this particular curriculum, it's called Teen Talk, and I were going to PTA, I would say, I, I'm not sure that this information is scientifically accurate mm -hmm. um, when we're talking about sex. I think that they're talking about um, chromosomal expression or something like that but again I'm concerned that this might con confuse mm -hmm, my mm -hmm. 11 year old mm -hmm. um, can we talk that through and can we get a couple of different viewpoints on that can we bring that in um, I think parents can totally hear that even if they completely believe that gender is fixed that you have to self-declare a label to move between it um, I mean I've always been confused as to why why you have to believe that sex is not fixed <laughs> as part of this. I mean, I know that there's, there's mm -hmm. people that believe along the range of it, but the kind of the official position and then what's coming in the curriculum. The only thing that I can think is that, that people are so used to trying to find a scientific reason why they believe yes, what they did. Yes. It's, it's not faith. It's not an opinion. It is fact. Right. Um, right. And so they're, they're reaching for something that isn't there and, and um, it's really actually ultimately unhelpful. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important because when parents start to look into what's being taught in their schools, if there is material that they find questionable, they could get very, very angry, especially if they see that their own child has been confused. And I yes. think there there may be a tendency for some parents to kind of come in guns blazing and then if you set up an adversarial relationship with the school, you're going to have a very hard time working cooperatively or even getting them to kind of change the curricula or see your perspective. So I would really encourage parents to think about how to kind of come into the school with a cooperative attitude 
And frankly, I think we have to be mindful about this rhetoric that I see sometimes, which is like schools are indoctrinating kids. I think much more often than not, like Stella mentioned, schools are being asked to be responsible for like a huge Mm. range of aspects of the child's socio-emotional life. And they're just pumped full of like new mandates, new curriculums. I remember when we were working at the school, this was the most overworked population of teachers and staff I had ever seen in my life. And they don't have time to sit there and philosophically analyze every single thing that they're telling their children. Like, it's just like, oh, crap, we have another thousand page document that we have to implement. So please be mindful that schools are probably not like secret Marxists that are trying to brainwash your children. Like they're just trying to get by. They are just trying to do best for what the students are. And and so many times, well, first I would say schools are reflecting society. They're not leading society. They're reflecting. So you can't think that um, you may think that this has all come from um, the schools. It didn't come from the schools though. It came from these online connections. It came from in-person connections. Yeah. It came from a new way of thinking about it. It's just a third way of thinking about it. And it's not going away. Mm -hmm. You cannot try to like hide the books. That's driving me nuts. Um, Like you ban, (laughs) if we just ban the books, then the kids won't hear about it. Honey, they're going to hear about it. Mm. So you need to to talk it through, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also so many of the teachers like, you know, they, they don't recognize um, sexist um, uh, material themselves. So, um, yeah. So there's there's some books, for example, where I see teachers like you could use a book like I Am Jazz, for example, mm-hmm. where it's like I always knew that I was a girl because I like butterflies and pink and there are teachers that might have that in the classroom and they might say, do girls always like butterflies mm-hmm. and pink? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're like, let's think about that. Do you, do you, you know, and uh, you know, you can actually use that as a teachable moment to say like, you know, that's the way this kid felt, but actually all, you know, there are a lot of boys that like pink shirts. Fundamental to education, fundamental to yeah. reading I found this on the from the beginning. <laughs> that's my Siri trying to talk to me about <laughs> finding the book on the web. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that, that um, some politicians and parent groups really misunderstand that and the way materials can be used, but yeah. you know, they're not wrong that, that some teachers just don't see that as, at all. They're not yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, so I get it. Well, thank you so much. Um, it is, it's so great to get a kind of a, an insider's take mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On, on what's going on in education and for such a calm measured because people talk I about know. California like crazy land. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Especially where, where I am. Like it's like, and you're saying, you know, that, that it depends on the school. It depends on, on how you, you handle it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, yeah. there's a lot to work with. There's, there is a lot to work with. I, you know, deep sympathies to parents and teachers where um, they're in schools where they feel shut down or where they feel that their child has been mistreated. Yeah. Um, I, I understand and I don't want to imply in any way that coming in with a calm measured approach is a panacea. It's not right. in some places right. you're, you are, you're not treated well. And I understand that. Um, but hopefully for many parents, um, this just raises a level of awareness. Um, 
And also just don't be afraid. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid to speak out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important. Well, thank you so much, Kate Parker. We've loved having you on. And we, we know that Thanks. our audience will really appreciate this discussion. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.